From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. White people calling the police on people of color for napping, barbecuing, shopping, moving in, or waiting for a friend at Starbucks. If that were 50 or 60 years ago, there may have been a lynching. We take a deep dive into race-based microaggressions where police are used as a tool. A lot of white folks see a black person that's in what they perceive as their area, and basically they want to react. There's always some type of rule violation as a justification. When it is appropriate to call 911, experts weigh in. He's an outsider who led a massive turnaround of Camden Public Schools. I will always be the face of a state takeover. His legacy, why he's leaving, and what could be next for the once troubled school district. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the overuse of the 911 service. In the past month, the country has seen story after story of white people calling the police on people of color. Threats of life, threats of property, threat of harm, witness to crime or suspicious packages. That's Rochelle Bilal, a retired 27-year veteran of law enforcement, on some of the reasons why people should call 911. Meanwhile, victims of overuse of the service include a black Yale student caught sleeping, black teens shopping, a black family barbecuing, Native Americans touring a college, and black men waiting at Starbucks. And now, Power Philadelphia is asking questions. Here's Reverend Mark Kelly Tyler. We think there's something that is a big red flag here. So how should society deal with racially charged microaggressions that loop in police? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Charles Gallagher. He is a professor at LaSalle University who is an expert in race, ethnicity, and immigration. We also have Patrick Duff, a local activist and journalist who made headlines for his investigation of 911 calls from Center City Starbucks. And we also have Sandra Thompson on the phone. She is an attorney who is also the president of the York Pennsylvania chapter of the NAACP. Welcome to Flashpoint, everyone. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. Sandra, I want to start with you. You were golfing when police were called on you and some of your friends. Tell us what happened. So on April 21st, myself and four ladies, we were members of the Sisters in the Fairway, an African-American women's golf group. This was our season opener. We were members of the Grandview Golf Club in York, Pennsylvania. This was our first day of using our membership. Our day started well. They actually had a delay on the course by at least an hour. By the second hole, the owner, who is former York County Commissioner Steve Cronister, saw us on the course and then decided he didn't want us there. First accused us of playing too slow. He came to us twice just on the second hole. We informed him that we weren't. We were actually keeping pace, and we even skipped a hole, the the third hole. By the turn, the ninth hole, three of our members felt too harassed that they didn't want to finish, so they left, and two of us decided to continue to try to make the day pleasing and finish the game of golf on to the 10th and the 18th holes. By then, they stopped us, said they wanted us off their course, said the police were on their way. How did you feel when the police were called? It was confusing. It's always some type of 
rule violation as a justification, as a pretext, when in fact, again, we were not violating any rules. It's just dehumanizing that we as African-Americans, African-American women could not do what everybody else was doing. Yeah. And and I just want to get Patrick in here. We all remember the arrest that resulted from a 911 call similar to what happened to Sandra. But this time it was at a Center City Starbucks. Now, you did some research, Patrick, and found what? The incident itself was not a um, an anomaly. I filed a uh, what's called a right to know request with the Philadelphia Police Department. I asked for all the 911 tapes and also the 911 logs from that address. Now, they wouldn't give me the tapes. But they did give, did give me the logs. And what did you find? The year 2016, there was a total of 11 911 calls made, which is a period of basically 12 months. In, in 2017, you had 42 911 calls. In 2016, you only had two calls for what's called dispersing a crowd. Uh, it's called a 3306 call. But in 2017, you had 28 calls for police to come to uh, Rittenhouse Square Starbucks to remove people. So those two gentlemen were surely not the only ones to have been removed. And then when you fast forward to 2018, there was already 15 911 calls made from that same location. So they're on track to do about 60 calls. So I am calling for uh, an investigation and also the arrest of uh, Holly Hilton for abusing the 911 system. She should be charged with multiple charges each time that she called for an emergency that was not an emergency. That's that's the rules. If you call 911 and there's no emergency, I think she's the one that should be charged. Professor Gallagher, could you lay some foundation? Why is this type of thing happening? And, and is there some kind of historical perspective we can give to this overuse of 911? There's a, a very uh, established theory about race, and it's it's really about what are white spaces. And the quintessential white space is a golf course. Take Tiger Woods out of the equation, and it is a very white sport for white people and typically white suburbanites. So here you have a, 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 a woman and a, a group. They're, they're black. A lot of white folks think they don't belong there. This is our space. And, and what the theory suggests is it starts with basically the idea of constructing someone as the other. They're different. Um, and that can be stereotypes. It also can be um, perceiving a group as being inferior to your own. But then there's the idea that certain spaces or certain Things are, are the entitlement of whites, everything from jobs to neighborhoods uh, to public spaces. And it's, it's not an accident. Rittenhouse Square is that area now is extremely white. And if you look at the amount of blacks that live in that subdistrict, it's very few, but they are basically uh, overrepresented by police stops. All the things, Starbucks, golfing, the Airbnb incident, uh, the woman that was napping at Yale. And I think it's instructive what, what the people said. Um, the incident just happened in Memphis. The woman, the neighbor that called in for a man who was thinking about buying the property, she said, uh, there's no right to be in our neighborhood. That is, there's no right. And this is the idea of entitlement. This is white entitlement of a space. And the woman at Yale, the white woman at Yale that called in to a, a black graduate student at Yale, she said her line was, she appeared out of place. And that's the idea. The logic behind that is that, of course, th- there shouldn't be black people at Yale. These are white spaces. The idea is that a lot of white folks see a black person that's in what they perceive as their area, their domain, and basically they want to react. So what do you react? You can either go up to the person and say something, or you can call the police. The police become a proxy for basically keeping a space that you perceive is white. And Sandra, I just want to bring you back in here because these disputes have been going on for a long time. And people just you know, leave. What went through your mind when you decided, you know what, I'm not leaving, I'm going to stay and I'm going to play? With Pennsylvania laws of defiant and uh, criminal trespass, if you are told conclusively that you cannot be on the property, they don't want you on the property, to remain on the property then may cross 
to the crime of defiant trespass. So, and, and that's what's bringing a questionable dynamic to these public places of Starbucks or Grandview Golf Club, multiple public places where it's open to the public. You've not actually committed any other crime. You're offering to pay their fee or have paid their fee. What rights do that owner or management have then to remove you from the property based on no other reason than your race. Sandra, they don't. A private club can, of course, uh, stipulate who is a member, but they need to be treated equally. And and that's exactly what the point is. If you treat, first off, it's a public, the 14th yeah. Amendment grants, right, public access. You can't basically pick one over the other. You either do it, no one uses the bathroom without buying something, or, or everyone has access. And, and I think it's interesting that, um, you know, Sandra, and I think to your credit that you held your ground, that's exactly what they want. It's low-level harassment. And that's the way white spaces get policed. They can police it by the management harassment, or they can actually get the police to police white spaces yeah. and to maintain them as white spaces. And that's one of the things I think, Patrick, you've been looking at because you also made a discovery about the number of arrests. Minuscule. Yeah, there's only one legitimate arrest, and who knows if that was even legitimate, out of 69 total calls in 27 months. In a sense, the white space that, that um, the professor was talking about is a space that um, if you infringe upon, uh, or if you drive through even, black people in, in the 50s and 60s, when they would drive down south, they would never stop to use the bathroom. Yeah, mm-hmm. I heard that as well. Yeah. Because, so yeah. it's, a, it's a similar situation where, where these spaces, uh, not only are they created, but, but a, look at the woman at the barbecue. After you know, calling 911 for two hours, she broke down in tears and she lied and said she was being pushed and harassed. And if that were 50 or 60 years ago, there may have been a lynching. The interesting thing is, you know, the, the, everybody's mad at, at the, the woman um, when really it's also a problem of policing. The discretion in policing needs to be um, more like a doctor. So yeah. if, the, if they cannot come in and assess the situation with empathy, then they're not right for the position. We, yeah. need, to, we need to figure out new ways of policing. Um, or we're going to be continuing down this path. And that's what my next question, because, I mean, Sandra, you're an attorney. We're in a see something, say something culture. People are actually encouraged to dial 911 now if you see something. What do you say to people to say, look, think twice before you call 911 on folks? It's the attitude of the police that makes the difference in whether or not someone is going to be arrested or not during these calls. In my situation, when the police confronted us, the police recognized me. What would have happened had the police officer not recognized any of the persons? Would they have been as professional? I don't know. Because you have here the power of a former York County commissioner who is wanting the enforcement or asking for the enforcement of police to physically remove us. And also, I understand that another York County controller is also a a owner at that uh, golf course. So you have white people with influence in white spaces, and more often than not, is white police officers showing up to enforce. Yeah. So there does need to be change because it's hard to have this strictly open to interpretation of what's defiant trespass because the law says if you're asked to leave and you don't, then it could be defiant trespass. So that issue of probable cause to arrest, the police are then relying on that fact to say they have probable cause because you have this owner or this manager, for whatever the reason is, good or bad, saying that they want you off of the property. The police are essentially yes. being used An to arm enforce of discrimination. racist. Correct. But the police also have yes. enormous discretion. Like the example that happened in Nashville, the police sided with the, the young black man that was looking at the property. 
So this woman was out of bounds, that she shouldn't have called the police, that he was completely justified because he's an investor in the property. Police officers do have discretion. And I, and I think that, that is part of training that's very important. You know, I don't want to blame the officers. They have to respond to the call. But when they get there, they have an enormous amount of discretion. And I think that that discretion needs to basically take into facts, was race here? And, and, and that's the point about if a police officer is saying, wow, you called on these, these men because they're black, that should immediately be a red flag for police to say, okay, something else is going on. I'm going to use discretion. There's multiple lever- levels to this because you got people that could be providing some semblance of discretion, some questions asked possibly from the 911 operator. Listen, if, if 911 is called, the question should be, what's your emergency? And that's why I, I have a sense that maybe there's something different. Maybe there's a deal between Starbucks and the Philadelphia PD to be security guards for Starbucks. Maybe that's the reason why they can call 50 plus times in a 15 month period. Because I don't know of any other place that can call that many times and not uh, be charged for the 911 calls. If, you, if your alarm goes off at night and it's a false alarm and it continues to go off, each time you get charged by the police for coming out for the 911 call. Yeah. So I just don't see how Starbucks is allowed to make that many calls. And there's no, by the way, there's no system, uh, a current system to show the, the data of 911 calls. They, the, the, the Philadelphia police says they, they rely on FBI statistics, um, stats that are yearly. Yeah. So they're they're depending on yearly stats for crimes that are happening daily. Black people and people of color don't rely on the police as often as white people. No, I think most African-Americans, if they're calling the police, it's an absolute emergency. I don't believe that they feel the privilege to be able to call the police on a non-emergency situation. And then even when they do have an emergency situation, unfortunately, in many of the neighborhoods that they live in, the police are slow to respond so or don't respond. Or, you know, there's been issues where they may have theft out of their vehicles and reporting that type of situation or car accidents, reporting those situations and you have officers responding, well, how do I know it happened? You know, I didn't see it. You know, that's quite often the response that black people get from police so that they stop calling when there's a dispute you call your family members first you don't necessarily call the police when we talk about black people and people of color because i know the immigrant community rarely relies on police that could get escalated and death could happen i mean people are afraid of police so what do we do i mean do we educate the public will this even change because it seems like this is just a a cultural thing a lot of things we're talking about these are things that could that start off as innocuous that all of a sudden spiral out of control. And that's when you see young, typically young black men getting killed by the police. Something that seems benign completely spins out of control. And it's like, oh my God. So I think police officers are engaging in de-escalation because you can go in and you can approach it certain ways. That's one thing. I mean, I think Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks, is doing something that I think is yeah, smart. Training. I don't think that a one-day training, I mean, I do training. It doesn't do anything for the 170,000 employees. But managers, think about this. If you're a manager, if you're the store manager at a Starbucks, you're probably making around $50,000 a year. And that is paying your lights and your mortgage. And if your boss says, if this ever happens again, you are held responsible. The managers are going to make sure the people under them are basically not using race as the means to kick people out of the restaurant. So you put pressure on mid-level managers to make sure the rank and file do the right thing. Now, do they still have racist beliefs? They could, but at least... You have a manager saying, this can't happen in our store. And if it does happen, you're fired. Black people have been dealing with this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now, why do you think the outrage is so universal? Um, Or I won't say it's universal, but much more widespread than it had been in the past. I think it's similar to what happened when when the Selma happened, when when people were beaten on TV. Because when you see something, it's very difficult to not 
accept it for what what you see and it's visual it's it's very cerebral and and all of a sudden you witness people being taken out of a Starbucks two minutes after they arrive and, and you say there's something not right about that um, but I think at this point it's a accountability if, if we have no accountability for the people that are making these calls then this will never stop I am so sick of that conversation when another white person has to look around before they say something I really think the emboldening of racism has to be also fought with an emboldening of, of social activism. And bystander intervention. Yeah, we did a whole show yeah, on that. Yeah. And, and he said also that one thing that's interesting, that you really can't, you know, challenge the constant barrage of YouTube clips. Because yeah. a, lot of, what a lot of white folks will say, oh, it's a one-off. Oh, that's an anomaly. Oh, that's an aberration. You know, oh, it's not. And the fact is that the camera on a phone has become civil rights' best friend. Yeah. Because the fact is that, you know, one is a one-off, one is an anomaly, thousands is a pattern. And, and Sandra, I mean, we're about to wrap up, but before we get, give the closing thought question, are you seeing more of this? Because you're on the civil rights forefront, and what do you think folks can do to kind of remedy this and encourage others to, to be bystanders and stand up? New York is symptomatic of the state as well as the nation of things that's going on right now. I think it was within the past week we just had a local sorority, Sigma Gamma Rho, who was stopped by police because they were performing community service of tricking, uh, picking up trash along the highway and there's a sign that says this road is adopted by Sigma Gamma Rho. So it it is symptomatic of where we are right now as a nation. Mm -hmm. The things that need to be done is the things that have been discussed in this conversation. Police must use their discretion better. They must come to these encounters, these calls with an open mind, listening to both sides and allowing the person, because quite often how these escalate is because the black person is not allowed to speak, not allowed to give their side. And when they're not heard or don't feel as though they're heard, that's how it could escalate even with their behavior. So the police should be neutral in assessing what's going on, uh, be diligent in their assessment of whether or not a crime was committed, whether or not they need to be the arm of that business. And yes, bystanders need to speak up. We need to use these cell phones and videotapes so there is proof. And it's unfortunate that we do need to have proof that we're not actually violating yeah. our laws or we're not the stereotypical loud black people, aggressive, threatening, because when these accusations start to flow, then uh, police use that as justification for arrest. And unfortunately, when you have a person falsely accusing you and the police choose to believe them, then you are likely to prepare yourself for an arrest. And you have to deal with that. And the proper thing is to get an attorney and to move forward and let them deal with it in the right way. Um, But we should have a voice. We should be able to frequent these businesses and these places that are open for the public in the same way as anybody else of any race, any gender. Yeah, and I'll let that be uh, Sandra's final word. And I want to get the final word from each of you. Um, the change. Will this influx of 911 calls that are clearly discriminatory lead to a shift in our culture that has been needed for quite some time? If it does anything, it's going to, to force people to look that this has been ongoing. This isn't this isn't just started. The fact is that these kinds of incidents, microaggressions, racist actions, institutional racism, this has been the norm in the United States of America. I don't know if that's going to change the culture. I think, I think people feel that they're emboldened to say things now and act in ways where they feel it's appropriate because they feel that it's not really about race. It's about behavior. It's about not liking you or, or, or what about my people? So I, 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 I'm, I'm not that op- optimistic about the near future. Yeah. You, Patrick, close it out. Yeah. I mean, I'm also in a sense of not that optimistic, but I mean, I'm not going to give up. I think, yeah, I think we're going to make it happen. I think that we have to make it happen. 
I think yeah. that we don't have a choice. I think the rest of the world is really looking at us right now as a bunch of fools. To Charles Gallagher, to Patrick Duff, and to Sandra Thompson for talking about this issue. And, you know, discussions like this, I feel like discussions like this are what help move the conversation forward. So thank you all for sharing your perspectives. Thank you. Next up, he's the face of a New Jersey state takeover. This is a city that has long grappled with a deep sense of disenfranchisement. The leader of Camden Public School steps down his legacy and why he's on his way out. Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and for years, Camden Public Schools carried a dark cloud. Situated in a city identified as one of the poorest and most dangerous in the country, the public schools were considered dysfunctional with 90% ranked among the worst 5% of schools in the state of New Jersey. The district was plagued by poor test scores, a low graduation rate, and a high dropout rate. Then in came Paymon Ruhanifard, or Paymon, as folks call him, an outsider appointed by then-Governor Chris Christie as superintendent of the Camden Public Schools. Now, after five years, Mr. Ruhanifard has announced that he will step down. Paymon, welcome to Flashpoint. It's great to be here. So, first of all, congratulations on your new baby. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And now you're leaving Camden Public Schools. Why? I thought this was like the best job. It is the best job I've ever had. I also believe knowing when your time is right. And for a lot of different reasons, I felt that after five years, it's time for someone else to step up and carry this work to greater heights. And, you know, for me, part of it is district work has a certain cadence to it and it's Mm -hmm. demanding. And so in some respects, I'm, I'm ready to spend a little bit more time with the family, but also so I will always be the face of a state takeover. Yeah. And this is a city that has long grappled with a deep sense of disenfranchisement. And while I very much believe that our work is critical to stabilize the district and to make sure our kids get better opportunities in life, I think it's really important for someone from Camden to step up and carry this work forward. And so therefore, I shouldn't have prolonged presence here. You were appointed by a Republican governor. Now there's a Democratic governor. Mm-hmm. Did politics play any part in this decision? I mean, honestly, not at all. I just felt it was the right time. The current governor, uh, Phil Murphy, he's been incredibly supportive. I'm sure a lot of people will draw that conclusion, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you, you we've been really fortunate because we've had bipartisan support. So you're right, I was appointed by a Republican governor, but every local elected official in Camden and really all of South Jersey is is a Democrat, and they have been incredibly supportive of our work. So our mayor has really championed our work. So yeah, not not so much to do with politics. When you came in... Camden had been on the worst, so many worst lists. What was it like then? And then how do you see the change now? I think back a lot to when we came in, there were all these stats thrown around and put it differently, just constantly being pathologized. So Mm -hmm. Camden as a city, the school district especially, 23 out of 26 schools being in the bottom 5% statewide was something that was bellowed endlessly by every public official. At some point, people started to talk about college-ready numbers that were very, very low. And I have kind of a twofold reaction. One, we have a long way to go. Two, I hate when our incredibly talented students and dedicated educators are kind of painted in that light. Because I think it doesn't capture the complexity of this work and the Mm -hmm. fact that uh, our challenges are decades in the making rooted in poverty, which is born out of centuries of injustice. But two, again, it does speak to needing to really move forward with a sense of urgency as well. So what we try to do is more kind of zoom out and humanize the work 
uh, and capture the challenges, uh, in, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a bigger light and to really just do the real work and, yeah. and to train our people and invest in them and to let them know we're not looking for short-term quick results, but we're, we're here to play the long game. We're here to invest in our kids and in our community. You were considered, quote, an outsider, not from Camden. You're an immigrant, but at the same time, you're dealing with communities that are largely Hispanic, African-American. Mm-hmm. How did you view it? I mean, just culturally coming into a space that is not your hometown, dealing with people who are different and dealing with situations that may be viewed as different than yours. I was understandably viewed with a lot of distrust. Mm -hmm. What I tried to do was tell my story and to tell people about who I am, what I stand for, and to also make clear this is not a one-person job. We we have to work at this together. And one of the things I always point out is, so our family came here as refugees with just the clothes on our back. But when we got to this country, our odds as refugees seeking asylum were far better statistically than that American boy who grows up on Spruce Street in Camden. Yeah. And just like how tragic that is. So I try to capture it that way to say, like, I, I'm, I'm not coming in here with some like prescription and some like easy solution, but mm-hmm. let's let's work at this together. You look over this five years as you take time and you get ready to make your leave. What are the three to four things you're most proud of? First, the fact that we've built broad coalitions of support is with our elected officials, with our parent leaders, with our students. Put a lot of time and energy on that. And I think that's really important to build goodwill and trust. It happens one conversation at a time. It's not easy. In terms of accomplishments that directly benefit kids, for us, our dropout rate five years ago is 22% and now it's down to 11%. One out of 10 is still too many. Our proficiency rates on park, which is just one test, it doesn't certainly doesn't tell you everything about schooling, but we've almost tripled them. We still have a really long way to go. The district was unable to actually implement capital repairs, in some cases, in certain buildings, decades. Mm. So our buildings were just literally falling apart. And now we have $336 million of capital improvement projects underway. It's across 11 different school sites throughout the entire city. It's really special because uh, our kids deserve modern facilities. I know that your critics have said, look, you know, he didn't really revitalize the schools here. They built new schools. It's now all charters. People were knocking on doors? What about the traditional public schools? What do you say in response to that? When you look across all of our school types, it's all trending upwards. I certainly would disagree that traditional public schools suffered at the expense of mm-hmm. uh, Renaissance schools are actually the, the school model that is new here. Um, and we have charters as well. Renaissance schools are kind of a hybrid of traditional public schools mm-hmm. and, and charter schools. At the same time, I can understand an opposing point of view that says mm-hmm. we have fewer traditional public schools. We've closed traditional public schools. And, and that's accurate. A different take on that is we now have Uh, more kids in schools that are getting great results, that have more modern facilities, that have more active engagement with with the community. That debate is ongoing, but I'm really proud of of the results. And the the last thing I would say to that is I personally have been long critical of certain approaches with charters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and my main critique, which is uh, sometimes they're not schools for all kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what we've done here is we've created neighborhood schools. So our Renaissance schools, they have some of the flexibility and autonomies of a charter, but they have to serve every kid in their neighborhood and they have to revitalize buildings on top of that. And I think that's really the way it should be. Now, that's not to say our other charters here aren't, aren't doing that because I think they are for the most part, but that's a very unique approach to And to I understand charters. they have to pay if they turn a, a child away. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's a nuance lost on on most who may follow education here in Camden. What you're referring to is if a charter school 
has a student or family walk-in, this happens all the time, if that student is seeking a very specific special ed program that they don't offer, they refer them typically to an out-of-district provider. Mm-hmm. And these out-of-district providers with transportation costs can, can run up to fifty dollars to $100,000 per year per student. Mm-hmm. And the district has to foot the bill of that. The Renaissance schools, by law and by contract with us, they would have to pick up the bill. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're incentivized to have all of those programs or they just go pay for it. Do you think that a big challenge here in Camden wasn't necessarily your leadership, even with your critics? It was more that people just felt, like you said, disenfranchised. That was the dialogue we've been having. And I do think it's important for there to be local control in the city. Mm-hmm. By the way, the way that happens is you have to you have to improve your results. That's the the most significant part of the process. Ultimately, the the governor and the Department of Education make that final decision. It took Newark and, and Jersey City and Trenton and other uh, municipalities, I think maybe Patterson as well, it took them over 20 years to get to that point, in some cases 25, 30 years. We're in year five, and we're in position potentially in the next year to bring local control back. And that's because of those improvements that I've been talking about. So do you feel proud about what you've accomplished. I'm incredibly proud of it. It's been exhilarating. It's been tiring. It's been the best job I've ever had. And uh, and I'm grateful to our staff here who work around the clock, our incredible teachers, um, our principals who are on the front line uh, training their, their staff and supporting their school communities. And, and really everyone in the city this is certainly not a one-person job. What's next for you? And will you stay in education and do this someplace else? My wife put up with a lot when I first took this job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, she recently uh, took a took a job uh, to be an assistant professor in bioengineering. I'm going to support her. Yeah, and chart a new course, possibly. Possibly. You know, I think uh, in large part because this has been such a fulfilling job, I'm almost nervous to jump into anything comparable. So I think I may sit out any future superintendent positions. uh, So I kind of kind of figure out what's next. What are your final words going to be to you know, the students of Camden to the parents of the city of Camden as you take your leave from this role? Thank you. Just deep gratitude. Change is hard for so many people in this city to welcome change, to want to be a part of it. You know, ultimately, I feel as though we did things the right way. To Paymon Rahanafard, the outgoing superintendent of schools for Camden, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thanks, Jerry. Next up, their method of outreach to addicts was once controversial. We can't get people into treatment if they die. A Kensington nonprofit focused on harm reduction, three ways it's saving lives plagued by the opioid crisis. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. According to the Pew Charitable Trust, Philadelphia was found to have the second highest rate of drug overdose deaths in 2016 among the nation's 44 counties with over a million residents. And last year, more than 1,200 people died of drug overdose in Philadelphia. Prevention Point is a nonprofit that is working to reduce harm to those struggling with addiction. With me in the studio to discuss their ongoing work is Executive Director Jose Benitez. Welcome to the KYW Studios. Thank you very much for having us. So for people who have never heard of Prevention Point, explain what it is you do. Sure. Prevention Point is a public health organization that focuses on harm reduction as a strategy to meet people with uh, where they are in their drug use. So it doesn't necessarily mean that people have to stop using drugs. We're going to work with people no matter where they are in the system and in their addiction to help them figure out 
how to get services as they need them and when they need them. And I think that's the important piece of it. So one of the things that we do is the syringe exchange program, which, you know, has been in existence for 25 years. We also have some respite beds, 80 beds that are online now to help us deal with folks, get them off the streets in Kensington. We have a soup kitchen that runs five days a week. We also are providing HIV, hepatitis C testing, counseling, and linkage. And we also have a program where we are beginning to provide a drug and alcohol treatment, which is the medically assisted treatment. We have a Suboxone and a Vivitrol clinic where we provide those, those two medications to people that are struggling with use. And so the, the term harm reduction is controversial. Explain the controversy surrounding harm reduction and the prevention's point, point of view on that subject. Sure. First of all, we see addiction or opiate use disorder as a disease. That's mm. the first thing. There's a lot of misconception out there about people making choices. And, you know, I want to be a drug user, right? And so harm reduction really is there are people that are not quite ready to come in and stop using, harm reduction sort of looks at how can we reduce the harm associated with drug use so that we can try and bridge people to treatment at one point or another. Because we can't get people into treatment if they die. You know, we're, we're in trouble as a city. I mean, we're a major city that is leading in all, all of the major cities in overdose deaths. Yeah, we had an incident where People were literally living in encampments in Kensington, the Gurney Street mm-hmm. uh, encampment, El Campamento. Right. That has since been cleaned out, fenced up. Um, and then people sort of moved into tunnel areas where they set up camps there because people didn't have any place to live. And now they're cleaning that out. What happens to these folks, many of which are struggling with addiction? How do you fit into that? And, and how are you helping dealing with folks who are essentially being displaced? That cause, and then they end up in neighborhoods. I've talked to people who live in Kensington after the El Campamento was cleaned up. People were in, in people's backyard. So you can't just clean it out. Right. This is a much bigger issue. Right. And I think that the approach in this sort of cleanup at this particular point is that, you know, we're doing a couple of bridges at a time. Not all of the encampments are going to get approached because there's not enough resources, right, to house 200 people immediately, yeah. right? So. We're going to do this slowly, and our role is to make sure that people who need assistance come from outside, indoors, and then if there's a treatment option, help people get into that, or if there's a housing option, help people get into that. That's the support that we're going to give the folks that are out there. Yeah. So you guys are located in Kensington. Give your address, and how can people support you in this effort? Because this could be anybody's son, daughter, Father, mother, friend. Yep. And with 1,200 deaths last year, we're on target to see another 1,200 people die this year so far. We're going to see families affected in all socioeconomic. Yeah. We're going to see people in all races. We're going to see people get affected. So how to support us? Well, we're at 2913 Kensington Avenue, an old church that has been converted, where we as an organization provide the services that people really need. So people can give online at www.ppp.com online.org. If you hit the donate button, 
come and volunteer. They can also do that through the website, the greater Philadelphia area, right? Philadelphians, we're a passionate and compassionate people here in our city, right? Yes. Donations, volunteer efforts, help folks, because it could be anyone. You can log on to pppconline.org to support Prevention Point. And good luck to you. I know this is a labor of love. This is not easy work. And I want to just send you good vibrations and, and Godspeed. Well, thank, thank um, and you so much. And keeping folks alive. Thank you for having us. Thank All right. You. To Jose Benitez, he's the executive director of Prevention Point. Thank you so much for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this issue. I appreciate that. Thanks. That's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Polish American rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once said, Racism is man's gravest threat to man. The maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. The maximum of cruelty for a minimum of thinking. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.